I really think that I became a poet because I grew up in a restaurant. Meaning you hear the sound of the wok firing, you smell ginger, you hear the conversations of customers. Hello and welcome to The Right Question, a radio program and podcast featuring authors from the American West and beyond. Our funding comes from Humanities Montana and members of Montana Public Radio and from the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. I'm Lauren Korn, speaking with poet Jane Wong about her debut memoir, Meet Me Tonight in Atlantic City, a resounding love song of and to the Asian American working class. Jane is part of a family staking their claim to the American dream, even as this dream crumbles. It's a portrait of how we become who we are. It's a story, really, made up of many stories, full of heartache, tenderness, anger, and food. Lots of food. This conversation was recorded in Spokane, Washington, in the Spokane Public Radio studios, in partnership with both SPR and the 2023 Get Lit Literary Festival, where Jane appeared as a participating author. Jane Wong is the author of the poetry collections How to Not Be Afraid of Everything and Overpour. An associate professor of creative writing at Western Washington University, she grew up in New Jersey and currently lives in Seattle, Washington. Jane, welcome to The Right Question. I'm so excited to be here, Lauren. Oh, I'm so excited to have you here. I'm just going to jump right in with a blunt question, okay? Let's do it. Jane, can dragon fruit mend a broken heart? (laughs) I love that you just asked that question. Um, You know what? I think it can. I think it can. And I say that because I feel like I ate so much dragon fruit and still am. I feel, I feel like my mom is still actually sending me dragon fruit and will probably have some ready when I see her next. Um, that there's something about like, I forget about my body. I think when you're in like heartache and et cetera. And I really do think that there is something about clearing your system or just literally feeling as if I'm being fed something sweet in kind of relation to something quite uh, horrible or terrifying that it does kind of heal heal my heart. I think nourishment always does, and so does you know my my family and my friends. So I'm gonna say yes. Dragon fruit, you heard it from me, heals a broken heart um, if you eat a lot of it. Um, but just like you know, be prepared uh, for the magic of the seeds to work so digestively digestively Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yes in your memoir you write love is instead have you eaten yet is carefully peeled asian pear slices on a clean plate is immediately offering the fattiest piece of pork belly is i paid the dinner bill when you were in the bathroom I loved the way you described this idea of love as relating Mm -hmm. to food. And I I feel like that was where I was going with this initial question. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about the ways that food draws out intimacy and nurturing relationships in your memoir. Thank you so much for pulling that piece out. Um, Wow. Uh, There's so much to say here in terms of food and nourishment and love and family and uh, also 
I think there's something to say about that particular part where, you know, especially in Chinese families, we don't actually say I love you very often out loud. You know, there's this kind of um, fear of like over sentimentality or just kind of like I, you know, I love you, right? It's almost like a demand, but it's like through fruit and through, (laughs) I know it's so interesting. I remember distinctly that I was applying for college and I'm the first in my family to go to college. And I was really frustrated, like in terms of the FAFSA, I didn't know how to do paperwork like that. And maybe some people have like family members or mentors that can help you do that stuff, but I I didn't know how to do it. And so my mom couldn't, couldn't help me with the FAFSA or anything related to my college applications, but she kept just like handing me plates like by my bedroom door of like fruit and snacks and like, you know, tea and was just like, this is what I can do to help you is just like have you eat some like apple slices. And so I, I think about that all the time is like, at least in my family, that's kind of a way to show up is to nourish. And, you know, I'm so grateful, I think, for all of those hard times in my life in which, you know, you get so exhausted, so tired, so brokenhearted, so angry even and and grief-filled that you can't even feed yourself. Like you're just kind of like laying there. And the times in which people have like literally spoon-fed me um, back to like life, like little almonds and little bits of pieces of joy that way uh and the times in which I've done that also for my loved ones and made them soup it just feels like a constant like stew you know that's always bubbling of caretaking and so I mean I grew up in a restaurant so I feel like you know I can't not write about food it's like always a part of me but yeah I really do think it mends a broken heart it really does you just mentioned growing up um, with your family in a Chinese restaurant. The, yeah. Your parents operated a Chinese restaurant in New Jersey. And food, as we've already begun talking about, it's such an integral part of this memoir. Um, what's the relationship for you between food and writing? Yeah, that's a great question, too. I really think that I became a poet because I grew up in a restaurant. And I say that because when you are surrounded by so much synesthesia or mixed senses at all times, meaning you hear the sound of the wok firing, you smell ginger, you hear the conversations of like customers, um, you know, you are at all times like in the like, I don't know, goop, I guess, of like (laughs) restaurant life because like you're like, you know, your arms are covered in like oyster sauce when you're like washing dishes and all of that, like it's so sensory that in many ways, like I felt like I became a poet because it's like, you know, surround sounds like and like saturated color. Um, and so I think there is such a really deep relationship, I think, between food and poetry. Um, and also growing up in the restaurant, the public library was across the street. And so my mom would literally drop me off there for so many hours, um, aka like free babysitting um, back in the 80s when you can, I guess, just drop a kid off somewhere. (laughs) Um, And uh, I read for hours and hours and I just, it was like the perfect uh, elixir, I think, for like a poet to be born in some weird way because it's like I was surrounded by all these um, sounds and smells and tastes. But also I literally was at the library, so I had to combine like writing with like food and I've always wanted to be a food reviewer but not in like the critiquing way but more just trying to describe what something tasted like 
and to get like audiences excited about that. Maybe that's like my next career. I don't know, but I've always wanted to be like a food reviewer in verse. Wouldn't it be so fun? I mean, that's a fascinating idea. You know, one of the things that I kept returning to or a question that I was returning to as I was reading your memoir mm-hmm. was, is this food writing? You know, mm-hmm. I, I, I don't know. How, how would you define, quote unquote, food writing? And, you know, I went to the Western Washington University webpage where you have yeah. your, you know, your bio and your room number and all of that. But it did say that you teach food writing. Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering how food writing is taught. That's a great question, too, because I don't necessarily have a clear answer for that. Yeah, because I teach food writing. It's a 10-week course, and I teach it through a multitude of mediums. Like, we read poetry, we read short stories, we, you know, read food reviews that you will find in, like, the New York Times, etc. But I feel like uh, ultimately what food writing is is just, like, writing about Uh, kind of nourishment or the experience of being nourished or nourishing others and sharing that and what memories come up. I think that's what I've discovered uh, across the entire syllabus or at least my exploration of food writing is that there's not a single kind of like a way of approaching food writing without it being like somehow bringing you back to your grandma or bringing you back to like this one particular memory of a first love or towards the future kind of like what you want to eat and what you want to share, what you want to cook and make. I think about recipes too as, you know, when you read really good cookbooks, there are stories like hidden in there as much as there are descriptions of the food and how much to measure to kind of like, you know, make this dish. And at least in my family, there's not even such such a thing as a recipe. You literally just like, my mom's always like, a little bit of that, taste that, touch that, you know? And so it's so, uh, I think like... Um, tactile kind of type of writing too you almost sensory sensory so sensory and so yeah I love food writing I guess like in some way all the writing I've ever done is tied to food writing but it's funny too because like I tried to avoid food writing for a long time to be honest because I was like in my own head and maybe this has to do with like internalized racism or just like stereotypes, but I was like, oh no, I don't want to be that Chinese American writer who writes about noodles. That's such a like people, when they think about like Chinese Americans, they're just thinking maybe a takeout restaurant. And I was like, wait a second, that is actually my life. And so it's kind of interesting that, you know, I kind of tried to avoid writing about Chinese food. You know, because it's such a, it's just, I don't know, it's like the first time, you know, some person like meets me, sometimes they're like, oh, I love Chinese food. I'm like, well, okay, hello, nice to meet you too. Um, But at the same time, I'm like, yeah, I love Chinese food too. I mean, like, why did I answer it that way? Slash, you know, I am a restaurant baby. I like, I love food. And so I feel like I have to like you know, do right by, I guess, like how I grew up. And it's it's kind of like the connective tissue between us all. We all have food stories. We all we all have to eat to a certain degree. And I think like it's really powerful to also, you know, be transported by people's food memories. And people have been so vulnerable about sharing some of their memories too. Um, when I will say some of them are quite delightful. Some of them are full of grief and longing and loss and a mixture of it all, right? It's complex. Food is never a simple thing, actually. Um, there's so much in there. So yeah, I'm still trying to like add more to 
like what it means to be teaching food writing. Like I'm like, oh, I don't know what it will be. But I will say that one time my students were in that class and we had waffle, the waffle day, if that makes sense. And they all were writing food reviews on waffles. It's so interesting that um, some of them actually went to restaurants and were trying to review their waffles. But then other uh, kind of students decided to like review uh, recipes. Like they actually made waffle recipes. And then they actually like try, they were trying to actually make waffles to order in class. And I was like, oh, are we allowed to cook in class? Like, it just was like a funny moment of just kind of like, oh, like, of course we want to, how do you like read food writing and not eat at the same time? You know, you have to eat it too. There was like, that's the thing. Or it's just that ambiguity between, not even between, about what food writing is and how someone I mean, even had you said you are going to write about this single waffle that we are all experiencing at the same time or like a plate of waffles, Mm -hmm. everyone would write something different. Totally. And that's maybe what's so generative about food, Mm -hmm. but also how it's sort of a tool for empathy. It is. It is. It's exactly that. It's an empathy connector. It's like we Mm -hmm. all have something to share about food and literally it is a shared thing like literally when we eat at the dinner table together um and again i think that it's one way or one avenue to understanding each other's humanity ultimately i was just going to say that you mentioned that someone will meet you recognize that you are a chinese american and Mm -hmm. say i love chinese food and in that moment, that's a that is a microaggression. That is that is racism coming out. But at the same time, you know, you in retrospect were like, oh, why didn't I respond with, you know, I love Chinese food too, and it mm-hmm. and it turning from what could be a very dark moment right. into something that could be a tool for connection um, and cultural sharing across those boundaries. Absolutely, and I think about that a lot. Right, that it's kind of like the tenderest door to tenderest most tender most tender (laughs) door to open I think is to kind of talk about food you know I could like talk to somebody who may have such radically different like political positions from me but yet we can still talk about food like it is kind of an interesting space but then how do we how do we move from food into other spaces of deep understanding and change right and radical radical empathy I don't know um there's no promise of that, but at least it's an open door to at least start, I think, talking about kind of like cultural difference and cultural connection. You're listening to a conversation with poet and memoirist Jane Wong. I'm Lauren Korn. This is The Right Question. If you'd like to listen to this conversation again or share it with friends, it can be found online at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. What are the impulses that you're following when you sit down to write a poem versus the impulses that you're following when you sit down to write prose? I love that you use the word impulses. That's great. Um, For poetry, it feels totally bewildering. When I say that, I have no idea when I start a poem where I'm going to go. And it's so thrilling, to be honest, because I can lead in with like an image or even a sound. If I'm just following like a sound, I have no idea where it's going to take me. And I love how poetry allows for so many porous 
pathways or like voltas or a turn in the poem. Like I don't know where I'm going to go. And I always discover something when I write a poem. By the end of a poem, I'm like, where? how did I get here? And what did that teach me in terms of like moving through this particular like image or this particular emotion? And so for me, writing poetry feels like super bewildering um, in a really great way. Whereas writing nonfiction, um, I still have a little bit of that bewilderment. But however especially writing a memoir, you do kind of have to outline to a certain degree. You kind of have to have some sort of plan um, and scene work. Like I, I'm, I'm thinking a lot about like, oh, I need to write this scene here and then this scene. And so I kind of gently planned it out um, in that way. And it was allowing me to do a, deep, a deeper dive in terms of research. And so the fact that you have so much more space was great because I could really dive into um, a lot of the sociological elements of this book too and thinking about um, my father being a gambler in Atlantic City um, and how actually gambling is a larger systemic you know issue for so many immigrant communities I got to do that research in that essay whereas in a poem I don't know if I would have been able to do it as deftly I think in the amount of space that I would have had but um, I missed some of that bewilderment um, when I was writing this memoir and so actually I wrote poems I think while I was writing this memoir as just to flex those muscles at the same time and there's definitely moments in the memoir that feel like I purposely put in some bewilderment in order to kind of like feel like that liminal space between um, a book of poems and a memoir. Um, and a lot of that has to do with like the made up character of wongmom.com. And hmm. I never knew what was going to happen in those like little interstitial chapters too. And wongmom.com is this, like you said, this character that you've created, this um, hypothetical mother that is a stand-in for your mom, really, yeah. right? And you you and your brother are posing questions to wongmom.com and I guess she answers, right? It, she does. In, in, in whatever voice you, you might characterize um, that being. Yes, yes. This made-up character, wongmom.com, um, lives in the internet, like early days of the internet, like AOL, Angel Fire sites. And she's delightful in my personal opinion because, again, like she, she answers uh, the questions you ask kind of like, you know, like what am I afraid of or how do you – how do you fight a bully? You know, like she'll just answer in the most like mysterious ways. So it's kind of like a poem. Yeah, a little cryptic. It's a little cryptic. And so I felt like that was my attempt at trying to pull in some of the process-based things that I love about poetry, that kind of bewilderment. And I think that one of the major themes of the book too is like the power of like poetry in my life to make things happen. Like it is, you know, in many ways I talk about poetry being um, really powerful for me. Like I feel like a lot of agency and like a lot of like, uh, I, I don't know, like I can change something maybe if I write a poem. And so I often write poems in order for something to happen. Like I will dream up, this is the way I want things where, you know, things to go. I want to go back to this idea of the research and, and the memoir and nonfiction being a form in which you're able to spread out a little bit and, and kind of... Um, work with certainly a little bit more breadth. You mentioned your father and researching gambling in Asian American populations. I thought that particular section of the memoir was really fascinating. You write, gambling rates among Asian Americans is higher than any other ethnicity in the United States, and that shame, denial, guilt, 
language barriers and help-seeking behaviors heighten pathological gambling within Asian American communities. I'm wondering if you can map those ideas onto the narrative that you're writing of your father. Yeah, I think that uh, this has been the most powerful, I guess, chapter or um, it was a standalone essay before it was kind of woven into the memoir um, for me because a lot of readers um, have actually reached out to me, a lot of Asian American readers and have, you know, actually shared with me like, oh, my uncle um, had a gambling, you know, addiction and, you know, he he lost his house. And so it's been kind of like vulnerable and, and powerful to be able to like, you know, reach readers who've had maybe some of this happen to their own families. And again, this is my personal story in terms of what happened with my father, but it's actually collective and communal. And looking at some of the research and doing, you know, that's from a a particular sociological study that was done to kind of like look at why are there so many Asian Americans who have this gambling addiction uh, history in in their their families' lives? That it's just shocking to me that you know that there was a way to kind of see the connective tissue between all of us. And in my personal life too, in my own like father's story, is that when you arrive in this country and you feel so powerless in terms of like not speaking the language and not knowing how to navigate the kind of like American health system and bills and all of that, that um, in many ways, the only kind of weird agency you might have is to gamble because it's almost kind of like if you hit it big, right? Like, wow, like that can change your entire class. It can change your family's future. Whereas like, obviously in thinking about the opportunities that are um, offered for so many low-income immigrants, right? That it's it's pretty hard work for very little pay. And so in many ways, like it is really trying to make that American dream happen quicker than having to wait multiple generations. And so I feel like my father was so drawn to gambling as like, well, if I just, you know, win big, you know, tonight, maybe that can change the course of my life and my family's life. Um, and of course, it doesn't work that way. And, you know, in many ways, he he lost so much money that we had to sell the restaurant. Um, and it, you know, obviously, it also led to, um, you know, alcoholism and also losing us, like losing us as a family. And um, it was really hard in thinking about, you know, this is my story, but it's also systemic. You know, it's not a mystery, you know, or a secret that a lot of these casino buses pick up from Chinatowns across the country. Like there's always that Chinatown bus that, you know, it stops in Chinatown. They pick up a lot of like casino goers and they they go to the casino and you get like vouchers, you know, like free tickets to ride the bus. And it's it's very much clearly, you know, targeted towards particular like low income or poverty level immigrants um, in this country. And so that, that's a hard, that's like hard to face because it's kind of like, well, wow, this is just my family story. Like who else has had this experience and what has it done to their family, right? Um, yeah. Did, did knowing that, seeing these sociological studies and seeing this research, seeing it out on the page, did it allow you any sympathy or empathy for your father that you wouldn't have otherwise had that maybe you, you know, spent a lot of, 
time or years blaming him mm. and and seeing that you know maybe it wasn't just solely in his control like i'm i'm wondering how you feel about your father in light of that information yeah no absolutely it did and i feel like i was writing this essay before i even wrote it many 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 years before i actually put like pen down to paper i did this own personal research i think i started in college trying to figure out you know you know, what, what is this? You know, like what, why, why is this such a huge part of my family's life and also, you know, our family friends lives too? Cause like he wasn't certainly the only one, um, in our community network that went to the casino. Um, and so, but I think over the years when I finally put it down to paper, like I was like, Oh goodness. Yeah. This is not, this is sometimes it's like kind of out of his own control. Like he, was just swept up in the exact right kind of uh, tornado. No, I mean it makes sense. You said it. It's systemic. Yeah. Um, and he was he was just. I don't know if we're using metaphor. He was just a pawn, right? Yeah. Like he 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 did not have agency Mm-mm. in the way that maybe you thought he might have. Exactly, and I think too. You know, we don't talk a lot about mental health in the Asian American community, especially among um, kind of like an older generation. And so I don't know what my father was also like going through at that time. And so I have a lot of empathy for him in the book. And there's, you know, this one passage at the end of that chapter where I imagine, you know, what a future could be like if I ever reunited with my father and that he wanted to be in my life. Like, what would that look like? And Again, in the book, I kind of, you know, basically say, what kind of luck do I need for that to come true? You know, like, what can I gamble in order for that to happen, Mm -hmm. um, for that, you know, reunification of a family? Um, But yeah, I feel, I feel for my father. I feel like I've, I've forgiven him so many, so, so, so many years ago. Um, But I also, I, I miss him too. It's very odd to kind of miss a person who hasn't been in your life for so so long um but yet has had so like such a big impact on where our lives went you know and again they were arranged to be married like strangers like my father is kind of like instrumental to um the way that our kind of lives ended up but also my mother um really truly gets all the shout out and you know shout outs and credit in many ways too in terms of like you know there's there's so much she didn't didn't tell me about my father I think Hmm. um when I was young and I only discovered things as I was older that um I'm still working through some forgiveness perhaps in terms of what he did to her that's very different as a daughter Hmm. I forgive my father as a daughter I'm not sure how I feel about him um, as a husband. Um, And that's very different. And I'm still working through some of that. Um, But I I do miss him and I wonder about him all the time, Hmm. you know? Um, There are so many things that we haven't touched on. I just want to give you the space to talk about whatever you want listeners to know. Oh, wow. I feel like there are so many different threads. Um, I kind of, because, you know, uh, thinking about Montana Public Radio, I feel like I kind of maybe want to talk a little about Montana, mostly because, like, Montana does exist in this memoir. And it's so funny. People, 
I think when they are reading this memoir, they were like, oh, I thought that this was supposed to take place in Jersey based on the title, <laughs> which is kind of cracks me up because I'm like, it does take place in Jersey, but I also lived in Montana and I also lived in Hong Kong. That was poet Jane Wong talking about her debut memoir, Meet Me Tonight in Atlantic City, out now from Tin House Books. Look for more information about Jane at mtpr.org, where you can also subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. This conversation was recorded in Spokane, Washington, in the Spokane Public Radio Studios, in partnership with both SPR and the 2023 Get Lit Literary Festival. You've been listening to The Right Question. The show is produced by Chris Moyles and me. I'm your host, Lauren Korn. The artwork for The Right Question was designed by Molly Russell. Our music was written and recorded by John Floridas. Funding for The Right Question is provided by the Greater Montana Foundation, encouraging communication on issues, trends, and values of importance to Montanans. Many thanks to Humanities Montana for supporting this program since 2008. And thank you for listening. The Right Question is a production of Montana Public Radio.